Hello, church. How you doing? You guys sound beautiful tonight. It's so good to hear you sing. So good to sing together. My name's Caleb. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after one of the pastors here. And we're so glad that you're with us this weekend. Feels like falls in the air this week, right? Man, uh, football's back. That's exciting, right? Pumpkin spice is in the air and in your coffee, right? It's sweater weather again. I love that. And uh, one thing you can be praying for, uh, Steele's going to start listening to Christmas music again soon. So uh, pray for his soul. Uh, Anyway, this is part 21 of our Romans series. Been 21 weeks in the book of Romans. It's been so good. This is season three, what we're calling God's sanctification. And in this series, this part of the series, we've been talking all about sanctification, about being changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Christ, right? Like Steele just talked about, of we are born again if we have trusted in him, those who have surrendered their life and submitted their life to Jesus as their Lord, they have been justified. That's what that means is being made right before a holy God, and they are now being sanctified for the rest of their life. They are becoming less like their old, dead-in-their-sin selves and, being, and more like Christ as they go along in this born-again life. This is, again, part 21 of this series. We are in Romans 7. Oh, i got to turn this on. My bad. Try that again. Rome, yes, part 21. We're in Romans 7. We're going to be in uh, verses 7 through 13. I've entitled this message, uh, Sinful Beyond Measure. We're going to see that phrase in one of our verses in verse 13, that sin has been being, what sin was being revealed by the law of God, and it grew to be fully deadly and sinful beyond measure. That is the truth about sin and our sin nature without knowing Jesus. For the last few weeks in Romans, we've been reading Paul's argument for the Christian no longer being under the law, but under the new covenant of grace, right? We are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to righteousness, slaves of God. We are his friends. We are his servants. Last week, Josh talked about Paul and his argument that we are now dead to the law. We are released from the marriage to the law because we have died to that. And now we are married to Christ. We have new life in Christ. We have died to the law and are married to Jesus. That is the truth. Josh also set up a little teaser last week for this week's verses. If you remember the example of his son, uh, them walking past a sign on the wall that said, don't touch this wall. So, of course, what does his son do? Touch the wall, right? Can we relate to that? And when we see a sign that says, don't touch, everything in us wants to touch that. I think it was a good example. And we'll see that. We see that in verse 5 that Josh covered last week. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We're going to unpack this idea plenty in our verses today. That's kind of the theme today. But like other times in this letter to Romans, Paul is anticipating some questions to arise from his readers back on his arguments about the law. The question is, does Paul think the law is sin, itself is sin? Paul wants to address his reader's thoughts before he even gets that question. But to me, it sounds like Paul has to keep repeating himself. Have you felt that way in Romans? Like, Paul has to keep repeating himself? I think that says a lot about us, right? That we just don't understand the first time We get it. We need to be re-explained. It's almost like Michael Scott saying, I don't get it. Explain to me like I'm a five-year-old, right? We just, we have a hard time understanding these truths at times. 
Before we pray uh, and look at our verses today, I want to share a quick story about the, I, my example of my life and see, bucking against some rules. Let me introduce you to uh, high school age Caleb. Yeah. I don't know what's going on in some of those pictures, but uh, that's me. Uh, I went to a private Christian school. You could say it was a somewhat strict school. At least it had a lot of rules. There were a lot of great teachers and staff there that uh, loved Jesus, and they wanted to help the students honor the Lord with their lives. But there was also a lot of do's and don'ts in the school. To attend this school, we had to agree to live by an honor code, to follow a certain set of rules, things we wouldn't do while we were attending this school. We were supposed to abstain from many of the pitfalls that most high schoolers and teenagers are tempted by, right? Of course, as an immature boy at the time, I rebelled. While I had an affection for the Lord and I, in some ways, wanted to honor him, my actions didn't line up with that desire. I saw the rules laid before me, and it was an internal war inside of me. It was like this feeling of, now that I know I can't be immoral, that's all I can think about. And what I heard over and over was, follow the rules, follow the rules, don't break the rules, keep the rules, don't sin, don't lust, don't sneak around everyone's back. And in my sinful heart, what I heard was, that's what I'm going to do. Eventually, my rebellion led to me getting kicked out of school 11 weeks before my graduation. I lost that raging war inside of me. So it begs the question, for my example and for the verses that we'll see, were the rules that I was given in high school, were they bad? Were the teachers and the administrators wrong in giving me rules? Were their intentions wrong? Or we could ask, was it that I needed more rules. Could that have helped? Though I would say the more rules I was given, the more ways I found to break them, uh, if you can relate to that. Or was the question, should I have had fewer rules? Should the students have had fewer rules? Or perhaps no rules at all? Would that be the solution? Sometimes today in our society and schools and governments and jobs, it seems the solution presented now is the overcorrection completely to the other side saying, Why don't we just remove rules, remove laws? That will be the solution. That will make things right, as if that were possible. (laughs) But is that the solution, to see rules and laws as wrong, to get rid of them? Or is it that rules perhaps show us something deeper happening inside of us? Could that be the answer? We'll see what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 7. Before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll look at this verse. Lord, we love you. We thank you for tonight. Thanks for bringing us here together. Thanks for a chance to sing to you and to worship you. Thank you that you're worthy of our praise, Lord. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word. I pray that you would teach us. We need to hear from you, God. I pray that your words, your spirit, your truth would go out and teach us. You would convict us. You would encourage us. You would change us tonight. So we pray all this in your name. Amen. So again, here is Paul preemptively asking a question. We, it says in verse 7, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Paul is going to answer, ask a question and answer it in one sentence. The question that was probably on a lot of his readers' minds Paul has seemingly had harsh things to say about the law up to this point. The law, we are dead to the law. The law can't save us. 
And he knows that the readers in Rome and those who would get a hold of this letter down the line would wonder, Paul, are you, are you suggesting that we shouldn't have had a law? Are you saying because we're free from sin and from the law, are you saying that the law was sin itself? Do you see the Ten Commandments as sinful? You say the law could never have saved us. Are you saying God made a mistake with the law? And Paul emphatically answers his own question again, of course not. By no means. That, word, that phrase there could be translated, heaven forbid. Josh said it last week, and I'll say it a number of times today, that God's commands are perfect because he is perfect. Anytime there is something that has gone wrong with God's commands or God's ways or God's laws, it has never been God's fault. It has always been our fault as humans. We are sinful were the rules, again, were the rules at my school wrong when all they were trying to do was help young people honor the Lord and his commandments? No, I was wrong. I was sinful. Paul says, in fact, if it were not for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. You've heard it said in the series that law is like, the law is like a mirror, right? It, it reflects who is looking at it. If you had somebody walk up to the mirror who was covered in filth and looked disgusting, it's not the mirror's fault that they're in that state. It's just showing them that they need to take a shower, right? So Paul says the law revealed to him all the sin that was actually in his heart. It just called out what was going on inside of him. The commands of God tell us God's standards. It reveals who God is, how he wants us to live, how we can honor him. It shows us what is good for us. That's what the Ten Commandments we're given for. A quick mini message here about God's law. God in his kindness gave his people commandments for what was best for them, what would bring him honor. He is not a God who is silent or far or distant. He's not a God who says, figure it out, go wander in the dark and try to understand what pleases me. No, God in his kindness, our good and kind God, lovingly and clearly communicated saying, this is my good standard for you. All of these commandments are for our benefit, our well-being, and ultimately they are the way that we show love to God and to others. They were given to help us. So simply put, do you want to know how you should live? Look at the commandments. Look at God's standards. Do you want to love God well? Well, then don't put other things before him. We see that. In these commands, don't put other things before him. Honor his name. Remember him. Set him as holy in your life. Also, do you want to love others well? Do you want to know how to do that? Well, it's pretty simple. Don't murder them. Don't cheat them. Don't lie to them. Don't steal from them. God's commandments are good. They are given to us for his glory and for our good, if we understand this. We, don't, we fail to keep them, but they were given to us for our good, which is our first point. The commandments of God are perfect. Psalm 19, like so many other places in the Bible, say the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Those who fear the Lord and want to honor him will seek to live by his commandments, by his ways, not as a good works, as a mean for salvation. We've talked about that. But as a life of worship, to honor God, to have fruit, of the Spirit, to have a fruit of 
being saved. We must come to realize this truth. Paul wants to show his readers that he is not anti-law by no means. He is all about he was all about the law growing up. He is not blaming God for our death by sin or saying we were given some unfair laws that we couldn't keep, like some people would say about the law. No, Paul says God's law is perfect, and it just shows us how bad we are. Again, to say that in another way. God has always given us boundaries and rules for our safety and for our benefit and thriving. We have to understand this. We even see this from the very beginning when God gave one of the first rules to Adam and Eve, right? In the garden, what did God say to them? You have all of the freedom you could possibly want. So much freedom. You can eat all of the fruit of the garden. You can reign over everything. Everything, you will have dominion over it all. So much freedom except for when it comes to eating of one tree. Because if you do that, you will die. God even, he, he warns them, this is for your good, don't do it. You will die. But of course, we know what their hearts were drawn to right away, just like they would be for us. The one rule, the one don't touch sign. People can say, well, that's not fair. Why did God do that? Let me ask you, though. Is it God's fault that Adam and Eve couldn't follow one rule when he had given them so much freedom? Is that God's fault? No, that is man's fault. God gave them a choice because that's what makes it relationship. God wants relationship with us. He doesn't want to control us and make us honor him and make us obey him. Having the choice to worship him or not, having the choice to obey him is what brings him more glory and more honor. People say God's rules for us are just too restrictive and unfair, but they were given to us for life. His boundary is good. His plan for us is good. It just turns out that we are not. We know this to be true if we're honest with ourselves, right? If we're honest, David Guzik, pastor and Bible teacher, said this, once God draws a boundary for us, we are immediately enticed to cross that boundary, which is no fault of God or his boundary, but the fault of our sinful hearts. God's law is perfect. We are not. Let's continue on in verse 8 of chapter 7, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul here said in, or Paul said in verse 7, what we read a minute ago, that the law showed him what sin was. When the law said, don't covet, all of a sudden in his heart was like, that's all I can think about doing now. Before, I didn't even know what it meant to covet. But this sinful nature in me, my heart is like, covet this, covet that, covet everything. Before we talk about coveting, we will in a minute. Paul says here at the end of this verse, apart from the law, sin was lying dead. He's basically saying this, that before hearing the rule, the desire to break it wasn't there. It's as if it was dead. It was inanimate. It's like a corpse. It's there, but it's not alive. It's not moving. Surely it was there. Sin was there. Paul talks about this. Sin was in us, but the conviction of that sin was dormant and asleep like it was dead. Continuing on, it's an interesting thing that Paul talks about coveting of all the commandments here. If we look at the Ten Commandments, at all these commandments, it could have been easy for someone like Paul, a Jew, Israelites to grow up and to trick themselves into thinking that they were obedient according to the, the law, especially the first nine. 
The first nine at face value are very external in obedience, in action. Don't worship an idol. They could say, cool, never done that. I've never actually made a statue or an idol. Or don't steal. Cool, I've never stolen anything. God, great, I'm, I'm, I'm all set. Paul was previously a, a Pharisee. Before Christ, he could have gone down this list and just said, check, 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 I'm good. I've not done these externally. I've kept the law. In fact, he says in Philippians 3, he almost goes as far as to say, I've kept the whole law. I was blameless externally. But then all of a sudden he would have been stopped in his tracks getting to the 10th commandment when God finally revealed that conviction to him. You see, we don't see that uh, coveting. It, it, it's, it's an internal thing. It turns everything inward. All of a sudden, all of these commandments you see in a new light, an internal sin within us. Coveting is a yearning or a desiring to have something that isn't yours. It is the very thing that shows our lack of contentment. It shows us our jealousy, our judgmental hearts towards others and what they have or what they do, our envy, our malice of heart. It shows us, it reveals our true heart. And uh, coveting is just caked into all of us nowadays. It, it so is, especially with social media, right? With uh, FOMO, the fear of missing out. We all get that when you're scrolling through the internet and you're like, wait, they have that? They don't deserve that. Why do they have that? I should have that. I deserve that. They don't deserve that vacation, that car, that concert they went to, or their house. They don't deserve good kids that obey. I deserve that. We covet. We're jealous. Left and right, it shows the reality of our heart. And Paul understood that as he got to the 10th commandment. So really, we see Paul says that God's law exposes our heart's motives. Romans 3.20, for no one has ever been made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. This whole letter, Paul is building on this argument that it's not action, it's not in keeping the law that we can be made right with God. The law shows us it's not just about our actions, but our hearts. It reveals the lusts of our hearts. Some translations of Romans 7.8 uh, has Paul saying, I would not have known lust if it were not for the law to say, do not covet. It's the lust and the coveting in our heart that is 100% an internal thing. We can have all these outward appearances of, of obeying, but in us, we are just sinful beyond measure. Sinful thoughts and desires, that is our, our nature apart from Jesus. So it is not the law that is sinful. It is us. It was us. If we know Jesus, it was us before we were saved. The law was given not just for our actions, but our heart's motives to reveal the secret sins within us. This is exactly the thing that Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talked about sinning and, and changing this paradigm for Israel and for us that he says it's, it's not just thou shall not murder but if you even hate someone in your heart, it's the same thing. If you wish them dead, it's as if you murdered them. And then he says, it's not just thou shall not commit adultery. It is your heart. It is do not look at somebody who is not your spouse with lust in your heart. Otherwise, it's the same as adultery. God's perfect law reveals our sinful actions, but also our sinful thoughts, our sinful desires. It reveals that 
on our own, we have no hope of being good or right. It reminds me of a conversation I had with somebody last week. My family and I went to the state fair, and this is just an excuse to show my family off because I think they're awesome. Yeah. Uh, really, though, we, we love the tradition of going to the state fair every year. We were standing in line for a, a ride for my kids, and the lady working the ride saw some Rock Church apparel that we were wearing and asked. And so I said, yeah, we go to this church in town. And uh, immediately she's like, well, I'm not religious. Uh, religion makes me feel bad. And honestly, I know I'm a good person because I volunteer and I try my best. Also, I know, I believe in my heart that we're all good people at heart. I was like, well, that was a lot there. Um, <laughs> and I tried to quickly explain, well, we're not so religious either. We're about a relationship with God. And uh, then the ride was about to start, and I didn't want to hold up the line, so we had to go. But I was like, you know, you should read the Bible. And, uh, <laughs> you know, just in those moments, it's sometimes awkward to be like, well, you are a bad person, so... Uh, <laughs> But as I thought about it more, that conversation, I'm reminded that sin can deceive us so easily, right? Sin doesn't want us to know that we are wrong. Like that lady, she, it, the sin wants to keep her right in that place where, no, you're good. You don't need a savior. You're all set. God loves you. You're great. You try. Awesome. But then the law comes when we're shown the law of God. It comes and it tells people the thing, the very thing they don't want to hear, but they need to know is that they are not good. We are not good in and of ourselves. In a loving and gracious way, we need to present what the Bible says to those, to all people that they are sinners needing a savior. We cannot be deceived into thinking we are good in our sins. So the law came to show us our sins. Speaking of this deception, Charles Spurgeon, I love this, said this. This is one of the most deplorable results of sin. It injures us most by taking from us the capacity to know how much we are injured. It undermines the man's constitution and yet leads him to boast of his unfailing health. It beggars him and tells him he is rich. It strips him and makes him glory in his fancied robes. This is what God's perfect law is meant to combat, to reveal our depravity, to re remove the deceit of sin and to show us the death that we have earned before a holy God. Our sin needs this rude awakening, this revealing of our heart's motives. We need to not be deceived in this. So Paul is continuing in that. In Romans 7, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Paul isn't saying here that he was actually alive apart from the law. He talked about this in previous chapters of Romans, that sin is real. It's deadly. One day, all people will give an account of their lives before the judgment seat of God, whether they have ever audibly heard the gospel or they've audibly or physically seen the Ten Commandments or not. They will be held accountable before a holy God. Paul is saying that before understanding the point of the law, before having the conviction of sin, of hearing the law, he thought he was alive. He was walking around whistling, thinking, I'm a great person. He thought he was good and righteous because of his good works. 
He says, the commandments that were given to us by God, again, for our good, for our benefit, and for our thriving, ended up being the very thing that our sinful desires revolted against most. How fickle we are. How dull we are. We see the good law that is from the Lord for our benefit, and our dumb brains go, nah, got it covered. I I think I'll do what I want, God. Thanks. Our hearts deceive us and drive us to the very thing that will kill us. Aren't we smart? This is because our sinful natures, our sinful nature all out revolts against God's ways. This is so true. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit of death. And we looked at that verse already. This is nothing new, but we cannot be deceived about it. This has gone on since Adam and Eve fell, and you need to know we are not evolving into better people as time goes on. It's just not true. Just be honest with yourself. God plainly spoke of who we are and our sin nature in Genesis. In the time of Noah, he said this, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. It's been going on for a long time. Jesus also spoke in Matthew that sin just oozes out of our sinful human hearts and it manifests into sinful actions. But again, it starts at the heart. Here, look at this, Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. A lot of those look like the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, where it starts that you rebel against those is in your heart. Our rebellion starts there. It's like with kids, you know. We, we have, uh, if you've been around kids long enough, we had the parenting conference a couple weeks ago. Josh talked about the idea of training your child, even as a small toddler, training them to understand to not touch something, right? My wife and I wanted to train our kids around that age, one, two years old, that we, there were certain things they should not touch. The stove, the light socket, the toilet, right? And it's kind of cute when they're staring at you at the time, at the age where they're staring at you and you eye contact and they're like, like, I see you. It just shows they're little sinners, right? But... They don't just stay little sinners. As they get older, now with my kids, hey, make sure you wear your helmet when you ride your bike. And then you go out and they're not wearing their helmet. You're like, where is your helmet? I don't have a helmet. Um, I was never given one. Uh, I'm like, what's that right there? That's not mine. Right? We, all of these, these rules and these commands are given to my children for their good, right? I want them to be safe. I want them to be clean, right? Not touch the toilet because it's gross. I want, I want to set these boundaries for you for your good. But as soon as you set the boundary for a child, we know, you parents know, that's the one thing that they want to do. And it's our job to teach them. No, you don't do that. Are, were our rules and our directions for our kids bad? No, they were given to love them, to protect them. They pointed out the dangers and the things to avoid. But then the sinful desire of their hearts is just instantly drawn to that. But that's the exact way it is for us, right? We see these laws, certain laws, certain regulations, certain things, and we can so often just all of a sudden our, our, our sinful desires awaken 
that, hey, I have to not do that thing that I've been told. One of my good friends, whom I won't name, uh, often when he sees a rule, he doesn't say, or he'll often say something like this, that's a fake rule. That's a fake law. It's a fake, that's not real. And it's easy to laugh at that, it is funny. Or perhaps it's easy to scoff at, and I'll shake my head at it a lot of times. Because, you know, I think in my pride, I think, man, I'm, I'm more of a rule follower. I, I, I pride myself on that. I, I follow some rules. But then I remember I have a rule or two or a hundred that I choose to break when I choose. We all do. If we're honest, we have a perfect example of this in our very parking lot. Just outside the south wall, <laughs> there is a, a no left turn sign as you leave. And let's all just be honest. Let's confess together who's broken that law. Yeah, you're all sinners. You're all sinners. You need grace. Yeah, but it's a fake rule, right? It's not a real rule. Maybe it's driving down the road, right? It's on this, on the side. You're driving down the road and you see one of these radars and they just infuriate you. You think, as long as I go four to eight miles an hour over, I won't get pulled over. We all do it. But what is that in us? What is that? that? It's sin. It's disgusting. If we're honest with ourselves, before a holy God, it is sin. It's easy to chuckle about it. We all do it. But in many ways, are we not just laughing because it makes us feel better that we're not the only sinners? We're not alone in it. But it's still sin. It is the very heart of rebellion that led us to be dead before a holy God. It is the very rebellion that will send countless people to hell forever. It's in us. And we joke about it. And we think it's cute and funny when our kids do it or when we do it. But then we see the awful things other people do and they they need to know they're a sinner. Because we sure have done a lot worse than just break some traffic laws. Haven't we? Boy, do we need the grace of Jesus. We all do. We all have the sinful, sinful desire in us just dying to rebel, and it'll kill us. I want to remind you that uh, chapter 7, Paul is talking about sanctification. He's talking about the Christian's new standing before God is righteous and justified, right? We are born again if you have placed your trust in him. The believer's sins have already been paid on the cross by Jesus. We are forgiven by grace through faith. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer obligated to keep the law as a means for salvation and forgiveness. Our standing before God is set. But we cannot be deceived, Christian. We cannot deceive ourselves to think that we don't still have a war within us with sin and our flesh. And we have to fight it by God's grace. Not our own will, not our own strength, by God's grace, which he has freely poured out on us. Also, we cannot forget that we have been saved to honor God with our lives by his grace, to live out the ways that please him. We have been given the commandment still to look at and to say, this honors the Lord. May I, by your grace, Live that out, Jesus. Because, again, we'll repeat it. Paul repeats it. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
Paul says it again loud and clear for anyone who would still question, is the law sin or did it cause me to sin? No, the law is perfectly good. You are the sinful one. In our final verse this week, he then says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Apart from Christ, our sinful desire is sinful beyond measure. If we're honest, we see rules and boundaries. From the depths of our being, we want to break them. But in the process of sanctification, Jesus wants to bear good fruit in your life, Christian. In our lives, through our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. It is not by striving to do good works on my own hard work, and my own merit, and my own effort that I will become more like Christ. That could, couldn't get me salvation. It won't get me sanctification. Do you understand that? If, you're, if the good works... If you're doing it out of a place to be, have a better standing with God, that's not the motive. It couldn't get you salvation. It won't get you sanctification. It is not by keeping the law in our own strength. It is only by clinging to the grace of God, by walking in his good plan and his grace, which is our final point. Our utter failure to keep the law reveals our desperation for grace. Last week, Josh reminded us that we have died to our marriage of the law. We are now married to Christ, and in that loving relationship, we have access to boundless grace, grace that will help us live according to his word and to honor him. Romans 5.20, I love it. God's law was given so that all people could, be, could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Praise the Lord. For some of us here, you may be overly aware of your sin, you're just so acutely aware of where you fail. You hate it. You want to fight it. You're in the struggle. When you stumble, you get back up and you keep fighting. You keep your eyes on the grace of Jesus. Keep fighting, Christian. Don't stop pursuing God's grace to fight the war of sin. Don't stop. But for others of us, you may be in a place where you are willfully deceived again. And too often you lay down and you go, well, I just, I want it. I know it's wrong, but I want it. His grace is not a permission to sin. We need to repent and be brought back again to the living, to living by God's grace. It should reveal our desperation for grace, and we should cling to his grace. Many other times for all of us, though, I think, we can be completely oblivious to our failures. And God is so gracious and patient and kind to us. When he lovingly reveals our shortcomings, May we not try to make up for them by living by the law in our own good works, our own strength, but may we be driven to cling to the grace of God for our right living. Timothy Keller said it this way. Unless the law does its work, we won't look to Christ. We will be in denial about the depth and nature of our sin. In other words, we need the law to convict us of sin before we can see our need for or have a desire for the grace of God in Christ. So as we bring this to a close, one of the most comforting things I've thought about this week is I was reminded that this week I'm incapable of pleasing the Lord on my own. I can't do it. You can't do it. That's the whole reason Jesus came. 
We need to remember our new identity as believers in Christ. He came and lived the perfect life we could not. And then he placed his spirit in us to walk with us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he did fulfill it. He came and fulfilled the law and its requirements for us on our behalf because we could not. That is grace. We did not earn it, and we still cannot earn it. Like with my school story, I didn't need the rules removed so that I could do what I wanted. That wasn't the solution. I needed to learn that the grace of Jesus was available for me so that I could walk in new life, walk in the strength to honor God and his commands by his grace because Jesus fulfilled the law in my place. He can help us to walk according to God's good and perfect commandments for our lives. Again, this, this, this obedience is not for our salvation, our right standing with God. Instead, it is because he has already saved us and now he walks with us to help us walk in what's best for us. Amen? Amen. For our glory, or for our good and his glory. That's what it's all about. His glory, our good. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done. Jesus, thank you that you fulfilled the law on our behalf. Thank you that you walk with us now. God, I thank you for your word that reveals to us our need for you, our great desperation for your grace. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to walk by grace, to live by faith, to honor you and what's right. Would you help us? Would you gently and lovingly reveal to us ways that we're not honoring you, Lord? Would you wake us up to what we need from you? Jesus, for our good, for our thriving, for the good plan that you have, and ultimately, Lord, for your glory and for your worship, Jesus. We, we uh, just thank you for Romans. Thank you for Paul and his heart for your church, and that we are even walking in that blessing that he repeats himself so much for us. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with us, and uh, we love you so much, Lord. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, if they don't know you, that they would not leave this place without asking how they can know you, Jesus. We love you, and we uh, just pray all this in your name. Amen.